Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of the Get Booked podcast is sponsored in part by Book Riot Insiders. If you are struggling to keep up with the latest releases or want to keep an eye on what's coming out in the next few months for work or your own personal pre-ordering needs, or if you need help turbocharging your TBR, Book Riot Insiders is here for you. Our new release index, available at the novel level for just $5 a month, is curated by resident velocireader Liberty Hardy from the All the Books podcast. She keeps track of the most exciting books pre-publications so that you can browse them, know when your favorite author's next novel hits stores, or find your next favorite read. So go to insiders.bookriot.com to sign up. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 179, and we are recording on April 30th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome. And from the construction on my street, (laughs) which I don't think the mic is going to pick up, so hopefully we'll be fine. But if it is, apologies to you listeners. I think we should be okay, though. What are they building? I don't. You know what I really hope they're doing is fixing the potholes. <laughs> the chances of that being what they're doing seem very slim, but mm-hmm. that is, I live in hope. I live in hope. I live in hope. <laughs> the Jen Northington story. Seriously. <laughs> All right. So before we get started, let's talk about how this show works. Uh, as I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So you can send your reading recommendation requests to us via email at getbookedatbookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. Um, and these can be anything. If you've read a book that you loved and want to read something similar, or you're traveling somewhere and want to read about that place before you go, they also don't have to be requests for you. You can be looking for a gift for someone, something to read with your book club, anything. So you can send those to us. If your question is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line of the email or in big letters in the first line of your question if you're using the form. We might email you back if we're not going to get to your question on time on the show or if we have already answered it. So keep an eye on your inbox for those. And that's it. We don't have any feedback this week. So I'm going to read our first question and talk about our first sponsor and then never speak again. (laughs) Uh, So our first question is from Sarah, who says, my friend is about to have her second baby. And I'm putting together a postpartum care package for her. Obviously, I need to include books. Pregnancy brain and a toddler running around have made it hard for her to concentrate on anything substantial for very long. So I'm looking for quick reads that she can dip in and out of graphic novels, poetry, short story collections, etc. She loves cooking, especially with the food she grows herself. Oh, that's my dog. Hi, Lola. And anything nature related. I've already got Lumberjanes, Misfit City, and Relish on my list, as well as Mary Oliver and Walt Whitman. Thank you so much for your suggestions. Okay, so before we get to second baby books, we're going to talk about our first sponsor, which is Upon a Burning Throne by Ushuk K. Banker. This book is epic, like it's huge. I have a galley of it, and it is big. So if you are an epic fantasy person, it's been compared to Game of Thrones. Ashoka is an international best-selling author, so this is definitely going to be up your alley. Uh, and this is about the emperor of the vast burnt empire. Well, it's not about him. It opens about him. He has just died, and he's leaving this really turbulent realm with no ruler. 
Two young princes are in line to rule, but birthright does not guarantee that you inherit the spot, for any successor has to sit on the burning throne and pass the test of fire. Uh, So it's got a lot of dark sorceries. The throne itself is a crucible, like it incinerates the unworthy, like a really scary version of Mjolnir. (laughs) Uh, (sighs) The princes uh, pass the test. But there's another one who also survives, a girl from an outlying kingdom. She's denied her claim, and her father, who's this really powerful demon lord, declares war. So there's their whole political intrigue, war, lots of beasties. Game of Thrones people, this is for you. So go check that out. Thank you for sponsoring the show. That is Upon a Burning Throne by Ashok K. Banker. So I'm really, I'm just gonna keep going. Um, so second baby books. I picked The Unsettlers for her um, by Mark Sundin. This is neither poetry nor a comic. <laughs> Whoopsie doodle. Uh, it's a collection. It's not even an essay collection, really. It's just a book. It's a nonfiction book about people who are looking to live off the grid. Uh, the subtitle is In Search of the Good Life in Today's America. And I picked this because I feel like with somebody who has just had a second baby and, you know, you're in that everything is kind of bananas. I can't really focus too much. Um, I'm exhausted, but I still want to feel like a grown-up human being with my own separate existence outside of these children. Reading something that's like a little bit kind of like serious, I think is helpful. And this is a book about a really interesting topic, especially to someone who grows their own food, because this is a book about people who are trying to live, you know, back to the land in America today. So it's an interesting topic, but it's not like really academic. It's not hard to get through. The chapters are pretty short. Um, So I think it would be a good fit for someone in that particular situation. So this is a work of uh, what, you know, is called like immersive journalism. Mark himself takes his wife who is pregnant. No, wait, no, he's, he's visiting these people in Missouri who are trying to go find on a bike in the middle of the night this homestead that they've purchased without ever seeing it. Like, they've never visited it. They just know that they want to, uh, you know, get off the grid and, like, have a simpler life and that sort of thing. So Mark talks to them. He also goes to uh, Detroit to visit with a couple who have started an urban farm in abandoned plots in Detroit. And they, um, the wife is Black, and her family came to Detroit as part of the Great Migration after World War II, um, and they are trying to uh, make a living and revitalize this little corner of their city after the, you know, collapse of Detroit, really, through farming. And then he visits a couple of other people. There's a family in Montana who have been organic farmers for, like, decades and are very entrenched in this kind of lifestyle. And it's so fascinating because, you know, if your friend grows her own food, then she's probably got a little bit of this kind of, like, pioneery sort of spirit of, like, I'm going to do this myself. Um, I mean, I have like a container garden, you know, and that's still a little bit like, I have my own tomatoes. Uh, I'm certainly not a back to the land kind of person, but he visits so many different people who are doing it for so many different reasons. And they're all fascinating. And some of them are like, yes, my parents paid off my student loans and my mortgage. So now I live here and can plant tomatoes for a living. Um, But then, you know, there's this family that lives in Detroit who have scraped out of actual destruction an entire living for themselves growing lettuce for the community. And it's just, it's just fascinating. Um, and a pretty quick read. So I think she'll enjoy it. So that's The Unsettlers by Mark Sundin. That sounds so interesting. Mm-hmm. I picked When Women Were Birds by Terry Tempest Williams, in particular, because of the Mary Oliver and Walt Whitman reference. It is not a comic or poetry or short <laughs> story collection. But I think if she hasn't already read it, she will love it. I will say there are a lot of 
mom feelings in this book mm-hmm. like the it's it's sort of a little memoir in tiny bites uh what when what williams is talking about is her mother died of cancer and on an anniversary of her mother's death she opens these journals uh that her mother had kept her entire life to find that they're all blank like her mother <laughs> had just uh, you know, three shelves worth of beautiful journals and none of them had been written in. And Williams's family is Mormon and record keeping and journaling and genealogy are huge parts of the Mormon culture. So she was expecting to see something like that and did not get it. And so this is her contemplating her relationship with her mom, her lack of a voice, her mother's lack of a voice, how she and how Terry feels about her own voice and how she's developed her voice. And there's a lot of just beautiful moments where, you know, she's taking a walk down a path near her house and stumbles across a bird or a plant or a stream and is in conversation with both nature and her complicated relationship with her mother and her family. So it's beautiful. The prose is, I mean, it's basically poetry, even though it's prose. And it is so evocative and so thoughtful. And it is, they're very short, little, tiny chapters. And I just I just think anybody who's a Mary Oliver and a Walt Whitman fan would love it. And I think it's also, even though it's difficult at times to read, it is really thoughtful about the complicated parent-child relationship. And that might be, I mean, that might be exactly wrong for her or it might be exactly right. <laughs> I don't know. But I felt very strongly that I was going to suggest this one because it's so good. Uh, so again, that's When Women Were Birds by Terry Tempest Williams. I read that book when I was staying in a, a, like an old bed and breakfast in upstate New York with my mother. Really? Yeah, it was an experience. I didn't know what the book was about. I just knew that like Rebecca loved it. Yes. And I saw it in a little independent bookstore when we were up there for like a friend's wedding. And I started reading it while we were in the bed and breakfast. And my mom was like across the breakfast table from me. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> this is going to be a thing. Oh, that's intense. That's intense. But did you like it? Oh, I loved it. It's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. And I like talked about it with my mother. I mean, she hadn't read oh, it, but like whoa. I was telling her what was happening in the book. And it was, yeah, it was really nice. And a lot. That's intense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm, good story. Good story. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question is from Helen, who says, I absolutely loved A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. I also read Rules of Civility. I love books with great character development set around historical events or spanning a long time with cultural or historical significance. Some of my favorite authors are Margaret Mitchell, John Jakes, Frederick Bachman, and Michael Shabin. Please recommend some books or authors that can grab me like these authors. I'm just going to keep going. I picked That Dead Man Dance by Kim Scott because when I think about books with awesome character development set around historical events. This is one of the first books that pops into my head. I read it for the first time for a get books question, a previous get books question, and I'm just obsessed with it. It is set in the early 19th century in the area that is now Albany, Western Australia. And it is about the first contact between the Noongar people and the first European settlers. And uh, Kim Scott himself has Noongar heritage. So this is an own voices book. And it's amazing. The whole book follows one character named Bobby, who is a young Noongar man. Obviously, Bobby is like his Western name. Um, 
And he is there when the settlers arrive and he falls in love with, a, you know, a young white girl who is brought over by her father. And uh, and he helps, you know, the settlers figure out how they're going to survive and is sort of a bridge between the Noongar peoples and the settlers. But obviously that sort of that all sounds great. It doesn't stay great for very long. Lots of things get very complicated very quickly for all kinds of reasons. And the book's perspective does hop around a little bit. You get perspectives other than Bobby's, but he's the linchpin character. And in that sense, it reminded me a little bit of some of Shaben's works, like where you jump around, but you're always sort of anchored by an event or a person. And this definitely does that same thing. And Scott is an amazing writer. He's so good with words. It's got this beautiful lyrical sort of rhythm to it. And and it's got a lot of character, the writing and the actual place and the actual people all have so much character. It's just I fell really hard into this book and like emerged at the end being like, what just happened to me? Like, this <laughs> was a journey. This was a journey. Um, and Bobby, you see him as an older man as well, when basically Australia is not too dissimilar from what it is now. And so you go through this whole time. It almost feels like time travel, even though it's within the lifespan of one person. It's really amazing. So again, that's That Dead Man Dance by Kim Scott. Okay, I picked The Architect's Apprentice by Elif Shafak, who is a Turkish writer. And this takes place in the Ottoman Empire. And it opens in the mid, I think, 1500s about a 12-year-old boy named Jahan who arrives in Istanbul. He works as an animal tamer in the menagerie, which is, you know, like the menagerie, you know what a menagerie is, the menagerie of the sultan, um, where he is in charge of tending this super smart elephant named Chota. And while he is doing that, like going about his daily life of caring for this elephant who is like his buddy, um, he eventually becomes friends with and falls in love with the sultan's daughter, who comes out into the menagerie to visit the elephants and the animals. Um, so there's that storyline of, like, obviously he can never be with the sultan's daughter. Like, a dude who takes care of an elephant, not going to get with the princess. Um, so that's <laughs> happening. Um, but he also is under undergoing this really intense palace education, and eventually he ends up in the care of Mimar Sanan, who was the Ottoman Empire's chief architect, who was a real person, who worked under three different emperors, um, Suleiman, and then I don't remember the other two. Um, and he becomes an apprentice, as the title of the book, The Architect's Apprentice, would imply. And so he travels um, around the world, around the empire and beyond, with uh, Mimar, with the architect, to meet other really famous intellectuals of the time. And a lot of, uh, I feel like I've talked about Forrest Gump more than once on this show <laughs> in the past, like, couple of weeks, weirdly. Yep. But it has that Forrest Gumpy thing where, like, this character who is born as a nobody ends up meeting all these really famous historical figures who actually existed and getting embroiled in his own way in, like, international politics, all while he's just trying to, like, survive, become a really good architect, and by doing that, elevate his station enough that he can maybe one day be with the princess. Um, and so there's a lot more intrigue. He's not the only architect that the, or, or the only apprentice that the architect has. I think there are three others. They're all very jealous of each other. They're all vying to eventually become the empire's chief architect themselves. So a lot of, you know, petty jealousies start to erupt and that turn into very dangerous um, and like intriguey kind of storylines. And all while, while that's happening, the, the Mamar, the chief architect, is building these huge, beautiful mosques that actually 
exist, still exist, you can go see, um, see them now. And there, there's an excellent part in the afterword after you finish the book where Shafak talks about how she decided upon these people and these buildings to write about and um, what's fact, what, what she like embellished for the story, for the purpose of the story, um, and what actually really happened. So I thought that was a nice, you know, addition. And if you really like reading these big, several, you know, decade spanning books that about one kind of ordinary person existing in the great gyroscope of international intrigue, then um, I think this would be a good fit. So that's The Architect's Apprentice by Alif Shafak. Okay. Um, question three is from Alexis, who says, I recently rediscovered my love of adventure books. Growing up, my favorite adventure books and movies were Jurassic Park, Jumanji, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Congo, and Indiana Jones. As an adult, I'm having trouble finding good quality adventure books. Are there any that would read like an Indiana Jones movie? I recently read The Anomaly by Michael Rutger, which has a similar concept, and I enjoyed it. I'm also currently reading Sandstorm by James Rollins, which got me thinking that I needed more adventure books in my life. I want to be an archaeologist in another life, and since that's not an option, I would love to read more archaeology books. Okay, Jen, what do you got? I picked for you Labyrinth by Kate Moss. I feel you. I also wanted to be Indiana Jones slash Margaret Mead for a good chunk of my young life. And so I think you will enjoy this book as much as I did. It is a two timeline book, actually. So you get the present day Alice, who is a volunteer at an archaeological dig. She's there with a friend. She's not actually an archaeologist, but she's visiting her friend who is part of this dig. And she's like, oh, can I help out? And they you know, give her a brush and send her off to a spot and to let her mess around. And she stumbles upon a cave and finds like crumbling skeletons and weird writing on the wall and a pattern of a labyrinth and something tiny in the dirt. And does she pick it up and what's happening? And then you flash back to 800 years earlier, which is uh, during the Crusades in southern France. There's a young woman named Alaise, which is based. Can you see what's going on here? Like there's some parallels. Uh, and her father is part of a secret society and gives her a ring and a mysterious book for safekeeping. And she does not really know what's going on but you know she, all she knows is that this is like a grail secret and now she has to help protect it because things start to go wrong in her life so you bounce back and forth between sort of modern-ish day France and 800 years prior and you get this intertwining very labyrinthine mystery that is totally like people running through the streets chasing each other over tiny archaeological artifacts it's very indiana jones in that sense and and you get all this crusade stuff so it definitely feels to me like that kind of feeling and it's got a heroine which i appreciate i love seeing a woman as the protagonist in these kinds of adventure stories you don't get it very often and it's the first in the series so there's another one or two if you like it so that's labyrinth by kate moss Okay, I picked Time Salvager by Wesley Chu, which is not so much Indiana Jones as it is Tomb Raider with time travel, kind of. <laughs> and like more crime. Can you have more crime than Tomb Raider? Yes, you can have more crime than Tomb Raider. So the main character's name is James, and he this takes place in a future, like a nearish future um, Earth, where climate change and war has left the actual planet Earth as like this completely toxic world that no one can live on. It's very wally, -E, you know. So humans have fled. We all live out on these other planets and on their moons. Everyone is miserable, eking out these like really terrible uh, existences. And Cronman, Cronmen, their job is to go back in time um, and to take resources from the past, Earth's past, 
and bring them into back into the future so humanity can survive without breaking the timeline. So like go back, steal some oil, come back without messing anything up or changing anything. Um, there are a lot of rules about it. Uh, you can't break any of them or you will be executed. And also every time a cron man makes a jump backward or forward in time, the stress of it on their body like prematurely ages them. So James is, this is his job. And he knows that he's coming to like the very end of his ability to keep making these jumps. But he gets offered one last mission that the payout is so big that if he did it, he would be able to retire forever. So he takes it. He goes back in time um, to recover some bit of tech from an uh, an ocean rig um, that he doesn't know what it's for or like what the point of it is. He doesn't care, honestly. And so he, while he's there, he meets a woman named Elise, who is a scientist from the previous century, um, you know, and her fate is to die on this rig with everyone else. And the reason why he has to go back at this specific time to recover this thing is because the rig falls into the ocean, like there's an accident, everyone on the rig dies, and this piece of technology that's very important for humanity's survival is lost. So he goes back, you know, this is all happening. The, the rig is falling apart. He's got, he's going to save this piece of tech. But then he makes this like ridiculous decision to save this woman. And he brings her with him into the future. And that violates all of these laws uh, and all of these rules and makes both of them immediately fugitives. So like his plan to bring this piece of tech back and retire, completely gone because he likes this lady. Um, and so then it turns into this big adventure of like ev evading the law somehow being surviving on earth because they're still on the actual planet earth in present day which is you know completely polluted and toxic and almost unsurvivable uh and also saving humanity because like they've got this thing this like piece of technology that they could use to save the planet um and it is the first in a series so there are more adventures to be had if you like it so that's time salvager by wesley chu nice our next question is from Danielle, who says, My favorite books tend to be when the prose, themes, and plot all feel intentionally aligned by the author to form a perfectly crafted present to a reader. Some of my favorite reads that fall into this category are The Vegetarian, The Song of Achilles, Freshwater, The Poet X, and Tin Man. I prefer standalone novels, but any genre slash age range recommendations are welcome. Also open to any suggestions that bump up books that are already on my very large Goodreads TBR. Thanks for the help. So this is such an interesting way to phrase mm -hmm. a question, first of all. And I, I, your tastes are also very interesting. Like, I don't know that I would have lined those books up next to each other myself, but I totally, I feel like I see what you are going for. So I picked Tentacle by Rita Indiana, translated by Achi Obejas. I know we've talked about it before, but it is so perfect for this question because I do feel like everything in this book is working together in a very interesting and specific way. It is pretty dark. Uh, this one comes with trigger warnings for sexual assault, homophobia, and homophobic and racial slurs. But you have the vegetarian on there, yeah. which is a super dark book. So I feel like you'll be fine. And freshwater. Yeah, and freshwater. Right. So I think you're going to be okay. So this book takes place in a well it starts out in a near future santo domingo and there the main character asilda is working as a prostitute and gets an offer from a john to become a housekeeper for this like santera witchy woman and the woman is keeping 
an anemone in a special case in a special room in her house. And the reason this is a big deal is because in this near future Santo Domingo, the environment has been destroyed by a like accident. And so involving nuclear weapons. <laughs> Whoops. Oopsadoodle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Super oopsadoodle. So all of the sea life has been wiped out. The reefs are dead and dying. And any living natural life is super is it's like a novelty like it's like something rich people are going to pay billions of dollars for to own even though they're not going to do anything <laughs> with it but it has religious significance to this woman and so Asilda in the meantime is just trying to save up enough money to have a gender confirmation surgery and so the like the idea is like well steal this anemone sell it for a billion dollars then I've got my money like hey what could go wrong lots of things go wrong <laughs> So many things go wrong. And then you also get like, I, I don't know exactly how many years passed, but you go back to before it's still modern Santo Domingo, but it's before the reefs were destroyed. And then you go back to like the very like settling of Haiti and the DR and like it's it like the, you know, the buccaneers and the pirates and uh, colonists. And it's it's so you're moving around in time and space time travel sort of is involved and the characters sort of recur in a way that it's a little bit like cloud atlas but but rita indiana is very much doing her own thing here and it's very queer as you might have guessed it is very complicated but not in a way where you feel lost it just unfolds bit by bit and you're like oh my gosh i see now what's going on here and i this book i read the whole thing on a plane it's not that long it's like less than 200 pages and it just i, I it was like a fever dream i got sucked in and was totally wrapped for the whole time and i finished it and i i was just like that was amazing like that was amazing it's really fascinating there's also a main character whose point of view you get who is the worst just fyi but like the book knows he's the worst there's no nobody's making any excuses for that guy um and i just think you'll love it i think you'll love it so again that's tentacle by rita indiana translated by achi obejas okay so i think what i kind of picked up on in your question is that you like books that have been nominated for could be nominated for the women's prize like that's the feeling that i'm getting from this kind of from your taste, which is also my taste. So congratulations. Um, <laughs> so I picked I picked for you Insurrecto by Gina Apostol, which should have been nominated, but whatever. Um, and th I, this one I think is a good pick for you because it's very crafted in the same way that all of the books that you like are very crafted. Like every word feels purposeful. Every plot point feels like it's taking you somewhere. Uh, and it's been compared a lot to Nabokov and Pale Fire and also If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. And I think those are pretty... Apt. It's very meta fiction. So it's about two women, um, Chiara, who is a Filipino translator living in the Philippines. Um, oh, wait, no, Chiara is the, Magdalene is the translator living in the Philippines. Chiara is the daughter of a famous filmmaker who, uh, in the, I think it was in the 60s or the 70s, made a film about the Vietnam War that he set in the Philippines. And Chiara was a child when that movie was being made and was living in the Philippines with her father and her mother as the movie was being made, you know, because her family was like traveling with her dad. And so she has memories of being in the Philippines and of being in the Philippines in this particular area where earlier in, in the early 1900s during the Filipino-American War, um, some Filipino insurrectionists, hence the name, attacked an American garrison and killed 
I think it was 30 American soldiers. And in retaliation, the American government and military killed several hundred thousand Filipinos. Um, and so that, that event has affected both, uh, Maxillin and Chiara in its own ways, even though it happened, you know, several decades before either of them were born. Um, so Chiara comes to Maxillin is like, look, I'm writing this movie. Um, about this event, about that massacre, um, because I grew up here and it means something to me. Uh, and Maxlin is like, yeah, you're just like the whitest though, American. And like, why? <laughs> and so she writes her own version of the script. Uh, Chiara hires her to like translate it and to, you know, kind of fact check it a little bit. But while she's doing that, Maxlin inserts her own, um, writings into the script. And so it's this back and forth. It ends up being this, like, you're reading, you're reading the script. You're reading about Chiara's childhood. You're reading about Magdalene's childhood. And then you're reading Magdalene's script. So, like, it's a whole conversation between these different storylines um, that ultimately gets to, like, who gets to tell the story of a thing that happened before, you know, either of them were born. Like, who owns it? D- does Chiara get have any right to talk about it? She lived here as a child in this place for a long time. Um, and her father made this film uh, in this setting that had a had a great impact on the movie. So she feels like she has a right. She also has that colonizer perspective of like, I have a right because I have a right. Um, and then Maxilin obviously is the kind of opposing viewpoint of that of like, no, actually you don't. And the arguments that the two of them have about the changes that she's making to the script are really interesting. So it is like, it's, it's like interlocking. The structure is very... Um, windy but purposeful it, you, you feel very trusting I think in this book which is the same way that I felt in fresh when I read freshwater and the vegetarian which is like this idea that I don't know what's going on here necessarily and like this author is obviously much smarter than I am and I'm probably not understanding everything that's happening in a way that I maybe quote unquote should but I trust that eventually I will get there and you do um, and I think that that is a particular kind of authorial skill of like getting a writer or getting a reader who's not as smart as you to the place where you want them to go. Um, so that's Insurrecto by Gina Apostol. All right. It is time for our next sponsor, which is Bloomsbury, who are the publisher of Extraordinary Birds by Sandy Stark McGinnis. And this is a middle grade debut novel uh, specifically for fans of The Thing About Jellyfish, Counting by Sevens, and Fish in a Tree. And it is about family, friendship, and the search for home. It is about a young girl named December who has never really had a home. And so she has decided that she's a bird, like she has a scar on her back and that's where her wings are going to sprout. And one day she'll soar away and it won't matter that she has had no permanent home in her young life because her destiny is to be a bird in the sky. But then she's placed with a foster mother named Eleanor, who's very kind, who volunteers at an animal rescue, but also has some secrets of her own. And December starts to see that maybe her story could end a different way. But can she ever really be happy with her feet on the ground instead of this beautiful soaring destiny that she has envisioned for herself? So feelings alert hello (laughs) just reading this description um but yes if you are a fan of like i said think about jellyfish counting by sevens fish in a tree and you want to discover a new debut middle grade author this one is for you again that's extraordinary birds by sandy stark mcginnis and it is published by bloomsbury thank you so much for sponsoring the show 
Okay, question five is from Teresa, who says, I would like to read some amazing books in translation. I'm really into science fiction, but it doesn't have to be science fiction. I just want something totally gripping from another culture and language. Um, she lists several books that she likes and doesn't like in translation, but it's a really long list, so I'm going to skip down. Um, I want books that help me understand people, so I do want an internal world in my books, but they don't have to be exclusively internal. Think The Martian Chronicles, lots of social commentary done in a beautiful way. I don't need any European books, but I won't say no if you think it's amazing. I'd rather expand my reading, though, and get somewhere new in my reading life. I think I've done little to no reading of African writers in translation, and the books that I've read set in Africa have mostly been in Nigeria and Egypt. I love short stories, and I'm open to anthologies. I would also prefer to read female authors. Okay, uh, P.S. I just downloaded about eight books from World Book Day on Amazon. <laughs> That's great. World Book Day was last week, was it? Sounds right. Yeah, uh, Amazon releases a bunch of books in translation for free on World Book Day, so that's nice. Okay, so I picked August by Romina Paula. It's translated by Jennifer Croft, and Romina Paula is an Argentinian author, uh, and the book takes place in Argentina, in Patagonia, which is like rural Argentina, like bottom of the world, um, rural Argentina. And this is a very internal novel. This is an epistolary novel. Uh, and Amelia is the main character. She's 21. And she lives in Buenos Aires. She's like left. She's from Patagonia. She's left Patagonia and gone to Buenos Aires. You know, like young girl going into the big city um, to study and have a job. And like she's got this what she what her, her friends and family back home think of is like a very cosmopolitan existence. Um, and then her friend Andrea commits suicide and she goes home to Patagonia to, like, grapple with that and to scatter the ashes of her friend. And so the book is written in letters from Amelia to Andrea. So she goes home and Amelia is staying with Andrea's parents in the house that she grew up in. She, like, starts wearing Andrea's clothes, sleeping in her bed, um, like, hanging out with a cat and also hanging out with some of her friends from her own childhood. She's completely put her life on hold and spends most of the book thinking. So it's one of those like internal model, internal life, not a lot happening kind of a book. Um, the things that happen are that like, she goes on an impromptu road trip with a friend and thinks some more, you know, um, but mostly it's a book about grief and her dealing with the death of her friend and also this feeling that she's left this place that she's from where nothing happens. Like it's, you know, every rural teenager's story of like, this place is boring, nothing's happening. I have to go where something interesting is happening. So she leaves and she goes to Buenos Aires, but also feels pretty empty there. So like there's nowhere she can go where she feels like she is doing anything that makes her life have purpose. She's got a failed relationship. So she's just not in a very good place and is working out all of her feelings about these things in these letters to her friend who she knows, you know, she's never going to see again. Um, so it sounds very depressing, <laughs> but it is really beautifully written and it's I think just really true to form like this girl is 21 years old, you know, and she's left this life that she was trying to build and come home to deal with the death of a friend who's never going to get that chance. And that's what I think that the book is really about is like as she writes these letters and realizes eventually that she's being very kind of like whiny um about her situation that Andrea is not ever going to even get a chance to whine. So she kind of in, de in processing her grief for her friend that she's lost, she also processes her own, it's not even a quarter life crisis, like she's not old enough to have one, but her own questions about like, where am I going? What am I doing? I left to go do something great. And you know, city life and all this, but that doesn't make me happy either. So like, will nothing make me happy? You know, these questions that we all have, no matter where we're from. Um, so that is August by Romina Paula. Uh, and the translator is Jennifer Carl.
I picked a short story collection called Future Fiction, edited by Bill Campbell, because you mentioned that short stories and an anthology would be fine. And I think this is definitely going to be interesting to you. It has, it is truly international. It has authors from throughout Asia and Africa and Europe and all the places. And (laughs) I loved it. It was so interesting and so unexpected. And I think they did a really good job of how they arranged it in particular. Because, for example, the opening story, which is called Tong Tong Summer by Sha Jia, is like a really gentle and sweet story told from a little child's perspective about, you know, artificial intelligence and healthcare and like an aging relative. And, you know, what if there was virtual reality or a robot that could help, you know, make that an easier time and make help them bond more. And it's really sweet. And then the next few stories are also about family, but they sort of get progressively darker. And then it gets really dark. (laughs) And there's like, sex with robot pandas and you know (laughs) human mutilation and you know dystopias and political upheaval and it 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 just goes in all of these different directions and when I wrote it up for the sci-fi fantasy newsletter I called it brain bending and I feel like that is correct like I each story felt like it bent my brain in a different way and particularly if you enjoy science fiction and fantasy which you clearly do I think you will find some writers in here that you will want to read more from I had only read a very few of them there were a lot of people it's not at all a usual suspects collection it is people that i have since found more from but had not read previous to this there are a few names i recognize but not that many so i think it will give you a lot of different directions to go in based on which stories are your favorite and which ones you are most interested in and i will say it's also more tech focused than fantasy like there's one sort of surreal fantastical story in there but most of them are much more science fictiony and it's just fascinating it's so good you get such a breadth of perspective on technology and how humans interact with it and so many weird little worlds built like it's just it's just phenomenal it's really 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 good so i think this is definitely going to be up your alley and also bonus it's from a small press it's from rosarium publishing who do some of the best weirdest sci-fi that i've ever read (laughs) so again that's future fiction it's edited by bill campbell and has i believe 13 different writers in it so lots lots to love there All right. Our next question is from Holly, who says, I've really loved reading Shout and Speak by Laurie Hall Sanderson, Solo by Kwame Alexander, and Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. I want to read something in this vein, novels written in verse. Uh, I'm just going to keep talking. I picked for you Bloodwater Paint by Joy McCullough, which comes with trigger warnings for rape and suicidal ideation. And this is sort of a historical novel in verse. It's about Artemisia Gentileschi, who was a like a real figure, a very talented painter at a time uh, in Rome in the 1600s when, you know, women were not allowed to be pretty much anything other than wives or daughters or nuns, you know, those are kind of your options. And her father was a sort of small town, but did get commissions. Uh, He was a painter. And he often used her 
to complete her his work she was she, she was clearly very talented um so she did a lot of painting for her father and like prep for his stuff and one day he does actually bring in a tutor but this tutor then rapes her and this takes place both before and after and it is really hard to read in some places but you have read shout and speak and so i think you're gonna Mm -hmm. be fine uh and i think it's an interesting compliment to those books in that you have this sort of historical story with a little bit of a modern perspective on it but knowing what i do know about this painter who i had heard of before and knew some about and also about you know current fiction around this topic i thought it was a really interesting way to do it it felt very thoughtful and it was very evocative i really loved the way that mccullough portrays artemisia's internal life and you know what it is that it seems like she wanted and why she was willing to go to such lengths to take her accuser to court which again in that time super unusual and actually got her father to help bring the case because she couldn't sue him as a woman uh so it was it was sort of a landmark moment in feminist history and it was really difficult for her she was tortured uh to bring evidence to this trial and so you're getting this really 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 intense story and i think in this case you know that poetry form helps to space it out a little bit and give you a little breathing room and also make it very evocative so again that's bloodwater paint by joy mccullough Okay, I picked Inside Out and Back Again by Tan Ha Lai, which is a middle grade novel in verse, um, which I love. It's about a little girl named Ha, who is uh, 10 years old. She lives in Saigon in the 60s, 60s and loves it. Like, she's very happy, except her family is very poor and her father is gone. He's been fighting in the conflicts and it has gone, it has been missing for years. But they're getting by, you know, like she's got an older brother. She plays with her friends. That, that kid thing where, like, terrible things are happening around her, but she's, like, adapting. And then the war reaches Saigon, and her mother realizes that they're not going to be able to stay. So she packs up her children and puts them on a refugee ship headed to America. Um, and Ha is very... Just her world is shattered, right? Because she's got to leave all of her friends, but also what has happened to her father. Like, what's going on? And when they are out to sea, the ship runs out of gas. And so they end up just kind of floating, waiting to run out of food until they're rescued. And then eventually they do make their way to America to a refugee um, program in Alabama, which can you, I cannot imagine like a more different place from Saigon in the 60s to Alabama in the 60s. That is such a jump. Um, and they move in with a family who has opened their home to refugees. The man of the house is a little bit nicer than the woman and they have to learn to make their own way. They don't speak English. Um, the kids have to go to school. Uh, and the mother has to make a living. She has to go to work and do all those things of, of navigating a new life in a new place that you never expected to or wanted to go to. Uh, also, you know, it's Alabama in the 60s. I mean, anywhere they'd gone, they would have ended up, would have they would have experienced racism and marginalization, but they get a lot of it in Alabama. And Lai has this amazing ability. This isn't the only book of, of hers that I've read. Uh, and in all of them, she has this amazing ability to capture a child's mind when dealing with really big, heavy, upsetting situations. Like the things that kid, the way that kids process, you know, being called a racial slur or like watching their mother deal with being in another country, not knowing what happened to her husband and those sorts of things. And the way that kids 
can pick up on a mood without having all the details is a really specific, I think, lens that's like really specific to children that she portrays so well here. And that's really hard to get because, you know, adult authors, adult humans, we forget what that's like to the way that we forget what it's like to be able to empathize without having information. Like kids just do that instinctively and adults kind of don't. But in this book, it's really beautifully written. So that's Inside Out and Back Again by Tan Halai. Okay, final question is from Amanda. Uh, my little book club, Ogden Lit and Libations, that's a great name, is celebrating three years this October. While discussing a good creepy read to pick, along with picks for a couple of other months, we realized we had yet to read a Western. We've already picked all our other books for the year, so we want a combined genre pick for October. We're looking for Western horror or horror Western that will keep us reading and that has great discussion potential. Our general guidelines are backlist that aren't extremely popular due to an impending movie or TV show and that are around 400 pages. Less is fine. More than 500 requires the book to be outstanding. Okay, Jen, what you got? I picked Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse, which is the first in a series and is like a future Western that has a lot of gore and like cannibalism. So I feel like it counts (laughs) as horror. And it is... Around 300 pages, so it's shorter, but you said that was fine, so hopefully that's fine. And this is such an interesting book because most Westerns, right, are from the American sort of colonist settler perspective. And I really wanted to find you one, a weird Western that had a native perspective. And this does. And it is based on Navajo legends. And Rebecca Roanhorse, the author, is Native American, although she's not Navajo, but she's married to a Navajo man. And so this takes the sort of like some of the gods, like the trickster gods and, you know, some of the other ones and whose names I forget now because it's been a minute since I read this book and also humans. And the premise is that the world has undergone a climate apocalypse, like a giant tsunami has wiped out a bunch of the continent and in the process has sort of unleashed magic again on the world. And so the Navajo lands have been protected by their, you know, medicine men and other people with powers. And they've sort of erected like a wall around it um, and walled out the rest of the United States, which is doing whatever it's doing. Like who cares? Um, And the main character, Maggie is a monster hunter because in the process of walling off this land, they've also walled in some monsters. And so Maggie is a monster hunter. She has her own powers, but she's kind of outcast for them. She's nobody really wants to be her friend, uh, but they do want her to hunt down monsters when it's convenient to them. And a little girl goes missing. And so she gets hired to go. And she, in the course of finishing that job, discovers that there is something very strange going on, like outside of the fact that there are just monsters, stranger than just monsters. And so she goes looking for help and they're... Are, but how do I want to say this? She's really bad at accepting help. Like she's not friendly and she doesn't want to be friends. And she's very cranky and pretty much depressed because her mentor, who she was also sort of in love with, has abandoned her. And so she has a lot of feelings of worthlessness and being an outcast. And so her journey is not like bright and happy and shiny. It's very dark already. 
But she, you know, starts to learn to open up. But then it's like, who do you trust? Who do you not trust? Who's playing who here? It gets very complicated. It's really interesting. And it is the first book in a series. But I felt like the conclusion was satisfying enough while still leaving the door open that it's not a total cliffhanger. Like you get some resolution here. So I think it does work for a standalone. And also, I think for a book club, like there's so much to talk about here because of the different characters and the different legends involved. And you could do some research and you know there's all kinds of stuff going on here that you could talk about and also you know genre bending and horror and how the west as a setting works with horror and what makes that work i think there's a lot to go on here so again that's trail of lightning by rebecca roanhorse so now i'm wondering if mine counts (laughs) i'm like i'm second guessing but i'm gonna go with it so i picked daughters unto doubles by amy lukovics which is a uh it was pitched to me as little house on the prairie meets stephen king and it does have those sorts of vibes and it's ya yeah and it's ya and when i read it the the family goes west uh, at the beginning of the book but i'm not sure if they go far enough west for this to be considered a western i don't know but maybe that's a thing you could talk about and i only just thought of that right now like when i picked it for this question i was like yeah this is totally great this is perfect and now I'm like, oh, is that far enough west? Where's the line? I don't know. So you can use that in your, in your discussion. Um, but this is about a 16-year-old girl named Amanda. And they have had a terrible winter. Um, it is in like that little house in the prairies kind of 1800s time period. Um, the past winter was awful. They were really stuck in their cabin because of the weather. They live up in the mountains. And their mother gave birth to a little girl who is blind and deaf and cried nonstop. So like this family of I think five or six people stuck in this cabin because of the snow, nowhere to go. Everyone starts getting a little bit unhinged. And Amanda feels like she probably was starting to lose her mind a little because she was seeing these visions, terrifying visions um, all through the winter. And she is somehow managing to secretly meet with a boy well, she was meeting with a boy um, in the mountains in the fall and has discovered that she's pregnant. So she's been trying to hide that from her family this whole time. And then her, her their father decides that they're going to leave. They're going to leave the mountains. They're going to start over after this like awful winter um, on the plains. So they head west, as I said, uh, in their, you know, like big covered wagon. And the, the process, he really did remind me of Pa in Little House on the Prairie, who makes the most nonsensical decision that are just terrible. Like, Paul is a bad person who makes with bad judgment. And the dad in this book is very similar. He decides that, you know, they've they've entered this area of the prairie um, where they've heard that there are a lot of abandoned houses. And so they're going to take up in one of those. No one stops to question why the houses are abandoned. And when they get to one that they decide they like, they go in and it's covered in blood, like dried blood. Obviously, something terrible has happened in this cabin. But Pa, uh, I don't remember if that's what she calls him in the book, but I'm calling him Pa because now I'm on like a thing about Pa and Little House on the Prairie. But Pa is like, it's fine. We'll pull the floor up. I'll replace it. We can wash the walls. It's a free house. Get over it. So they move in. And as the days go by, Amanda starts to realize that like something is really not right here. Her neighbors are extremely creepy. Really small things start to happen. She starts having more visions um, of stuff out on the plains and the prairie. And she thinks that like, It's because she feels guilty because she really wants to get rid of this baby and doesn't know how to do it. Also, she really does not like her little sister uh, who was born deaf and blind and just cries all the time. So she feels like maybe the devil is putting these visions into her head to torment her for being terrible. Um, And then like violence breaks out. And I'm sure you can imagine where it goes. It was real creepy. (laughs) Like it was very um, unsettling. Um, And I think probably a more accurate representation of 
that kind of life in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by no one helpful except your family, and if your family is terrible, what are you supposed to do about it? Nothing. Um, then the little house on the prairie would be. I don't know. It's just, obviously a lot of the violence here is a, are is metaphorical for the ways that we treat girls, especially sexually active girls. So there's a lot to pick apart and discuss, including, is it a Western? <laughs> Let me know what you decide, because I, I can't figure it out. So that's Daughters Unto Devils by Amy Lukovic. Is that our show? That's our show. Hey! <laughs> On that note, <laughs> is it a Western? Um, thank you all so much for listening. Please go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson and Jen. You can find me on Twitter as Jen IRL and you can find me on Instagram as I am Jen IRL and that's Jen with two N's. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.